Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Generally speaking, what we've done is we've had a culture within male culture that if you look throughout history has made it possible for men to share the depths of their being to talk about their challenges to talk about the problems to talk about their pain and instead what we've replaced it with is this notion within masculine culture that you become a stronger man through suppression that strength equals suppression that the more that you can stuff shit down the stronger you'll be what's up man you know what i was thinking about when well, first off, thanks for having me. Dude. But we have talks all the time. We might as well just record them. I agree. You know, <laughs> I, what I was going to say is I think that we undervalue as human beings getting to be a fly on the wall in other people's conversations, you know, especially like people that we respect or admire. Yeah, that's and true. I, I think that sometimes some of the best conversations and podcasts that I've listened to are just people that I that I respect and admire, whether it's intellectually or from a spiritual level, just sort of talking, you yeah, know, about what they think about. And not not in like a scripted way, but just kind of getting to be a fly on the wall. And the other thing I was going to say is that when I walked in to this little room here, I got a flashback of us sitting on your couch in your old apartment. In York. When in, we did yeah, the on, pod? Yeah, on York. Yeah, the first like pod that we did. The first man talks. That's that was right. a man talks pod. That's right. And we recorded it and... I don't even remember what we talked about. It was it was arguably probably pretty mediocre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I appreciate the uh, uh, assessment, the rating in hindsight. Right. You know, I, that was, I also gave my first talk on relationships at a Man Talks event, the second Man Talks event, I believe That's it was, true. right? That's true. I went to the first one, the inaugural. And that was such an opportunity. Thank you for that. You know, in hindsight, that was like, I think I had given a talk with uh, uh, Aaron Sky Kelly at Transformation Weekend, but not mm. about something so personal. Yeah. Uh, of course, Man Talks was about sharing the personal transformation, the personal experience. And uh, I remember I said uh, at the beginning, not every relationship is meant to last forever. Mm. And people being in the audience like, okay, buddy. Like... <laughs> Uh, I don't agree. And yeah. It's great, but not everyone does. So I guess I'm right. There you go. You know, that's true. <laughs> like, sorry it's, about your luck, but it's true. 
But it made me think, you know, walking into the studio, we're sitting in Manhattan. It's pretty cool. You know, I'm married and I have a kid. You're doing incredible things to see where our lives have gone since sitting in on the couch in your apartment, you know, in Vancouver and at the sort of beginning of this this journey. Yeah. And then to be sitting here with you right now and I mean how much life has come in between then and now, but just to have watched your growth and who you've become, it's been such a a, a treat to be your friend and to be by your side, mm. you know, through this and to have uh, a genuine companion and brother in arms as we've like gone through this because it's been some really fucking hard times you know some <laughs> yeah, like really hard times in both of our breakups, lives breakups starting relationships getting back together yeah. I was single I think when we did our first pod probably I think yeah. so yeah yeah it would have been yeah it was like pre-Kylie yeah it was pre-Kylie BK yeah <laughs> BK um, PK PK yeah it, it was oh yeah PK not, not yeah not pre Kylie not before Kylie I feel like there's part of Kylie's spiritual ego that would love that notion <laughs> she would you know, yeah. it's like oh before Kylie <laughs> the essence of Christ <laughs> in Kylie yeah man it's been a journey and uh, you know I, you've been a guest on the pod a couple times now um, yeah, yeah. this will be the third I think I think so yeah once or twice yeah. you're three-peating yeah, and uh, keeps getting better. Unlike uh, Michael Jordan, uh, when he kept coming back. <laughs> but this is, yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. And it, your work with men has been, I mean, revolutionary in a lot of ways. Mm. Because when you started, there wasn't a lot of conversation about men. Yeah, um, there might have been more like men's right movements or what people might call like red pill movement or whatever those term is, which I think. A, Part of, uh, although there's value certainly mm -hmm. in those mm -hmm. movements and they exist for a reason. There's like a lot of underground stuff. Totally. You know, it was like, I think the men's movement happened, you know, with what most people know is like the mythopoetic mo movement with Robert Bly, like back in the 70s and 80s. And then it sort of just was underground. I think the Mankind Movement, Mankind Project. Oh, yeah, Mankind was you great. You know, I think they sort of great. carried on this tradition. But then myself and a few other people were sort of at the beginning of this wave of men talking about therapeutic modalities, mm -hmm. you know, and, and talking about the, the sort of moving aside the, the veil and the curtain of masculinity and what we normally would talk about and have more honest conversations about the, just the shit that was going on in our lives. Yeah, I feel like there was some luck and coincidence <laughs> that I started Man Talks when I did, uh, because I look out today and there's just there's tons of people. Yeah, there's that some are, really powerful men's yeah, movements going yeah, on. Yeah, that are and and that aren't necessarily doing quote unquote men's work or a part of the men's movement, but are just speaking to men in a very different way. You know, from from truth and transparency and authenticity. You know, I look at people like. Jordan Peterson or Aubrey Marcus, who have very different perspectives, but are, I think, reaching men in a way and, and calling them forward into a kind of authenticity and, and transparency that that I think has lapsed a few generations. Yeah, you know, that that transparency didn't necessarily show up in our father's lives or maybe even their father's lives. Yeah, you know, a lot of the, when I think of the men's rights versus conversations yeah. right because i think the men's rights movements is often confused with movements like man talks like mankind mm. project you know and 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 this idea that like who are men 
to have needs and desires and spaces when the world has oriented around men, mm-hmm. right? That seems to be an often a criticism, probably more from women, which makes total sense. Yep. And, and there is validity in the, the basis of that concern or care. It also, what the nuance that that lacks, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, is that it still perpetuates this idea that emotionality in men, and I don't know how to say this right, there probably is no right way, mm. but that emotionality in men even is often misconstrued, maybe because we've weaponized emotionality sometimes, mm. um, or like if it's, like they don't trust that if if there's a space where we're talking about love and vulnerability and how the world has hurt us or right. like sends us to war and kills us and puts us in the hardest or sorry, the highest risk jobs generally. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they don't trust when we want to actually talk about these things like that. Maybe it's just more manipulation or more. Right. Yeah. What do you think about that? Cause, and am I, am I assessing that criticism correctly? Yeah. I mean, I think you it, would hear a lot of it. So, you, you know, I don't, I don't know how, much value there is in us getting into like gender politics or identity politics. I think yeah, we probably steer yeah. clear of that a little bit. Yeah, but yeah. but what I will say is that, you know, I think there's this men have built a lot of the world, you know, for good or for bad. I think it's just factual. You know, if you look at the the job ranges within plumbing and electricians and the infrastructure that runs our societies, like men have built a lot of that. And so there is this notion that men control a lot. And then, you know, historically within the political sphere and um, and sometimes within religious spheres as well. There's obviously, sometimes there's very much overlap between those two things. Yeah. And there's there's often, you know, men that are in those positions making those decisions. So when it comes to things like men's rights, you know, it's it's very challenging, I think, and rightly, rightfully so, I think, for some people to to see like maybe maybe being a man in certain cultures or in certain time periods isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And there's this notion that men have all the power and that because this notion that if you, as a man, you have all the power, then you must have it good. Mm -hmm. But I think that we often overlook, maybe there's an oversight sometimes that comes along with, with the price and the cost that, that can come along with that. And we, we oftentimes focus in on the people who have abused that power, who have been abusive, who have taken advantage of it, who have been harmful, mm-hmm. who have accumulated a tremendous amount of power. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes the kind of blanket statement that goes out across all men, right? It's like all men are this way and all men are that way. And I think that that's the damaging perspective, you know, is to take what a couple men do and say all men are this way. You know, we we would never socially or culturally within our modern times do that with women. We would never say, oh, these women were abusive and they abused power and so all women are this way. You know, I don't think that any gender or any sex wants to be categorized that way. So I think I think that's mm. part of the, the challenge. Um, but, you know, there's truth in the sense that men historically have been the more violent of the species. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's just, that's just yeah. factual. And I think from an evolutionary standpoint for a long time that that violence actually served a function. When we step back and can look at, hey, maybe this biological imperative that has existed within us, this served a purpose, you know, yeah. 1,000, 2,000 years ago, maybe even 500 years ago, uh, maybe even 100 years ago. Within our modern times, maybe it doesn't serve as much of a function or a purpose. But I think the challenge is that that violence um, has obviously hurt a lot of women, you know, right. and a lot of children and, and a lot of other men. 
And so, you know, I think we have to look at what it means to be violent, what it means to be aggressive, and not confuse those things with assertiveness and directness and anger, because I think mm-hmm. sometimes those things get conflated. Um, and that we, you know, we can look at the responsibility that we as men carry within our culture and our society, because generally speaking, men respond to a sense of calling. You know, we like being called to something, called to battle, called to fix a problem, called to contribute to something. And I think that right now, another way of saying that I'll come back to it is we like to feel needed. You mm-hmm. know, we find function and purpose. It's like, I oh, you need me to take care of that. You yeah. know, you want me to fix that. Or, oh, I can I can support this, this movement or help figure out this problem that is going to make people's lives better. It's like, I love that shit. You know, it's like I think <laughs> totally. most most men, we want we we thrive when we feel needed and we thrive when we feel called into something. And so I think what's challenging about the current narratives that talk about men and masculinity is that a lot of it is steeped in this sort of hatred towards men yeah. and and mistrust of men. And it and I get where it comes from. Right? It comes right. from like I was hurt by men. But I think the notion that we you know, continue to put out of like, oh, I don't need a man. And, you know, I see these articles of like, would the world be better without men? You know, really genuinely asking yeah, that I question. I saw somewhere, I forget which famous person said that testosterone is actually evil. James Cameron. James, James Cameron. Cameron. Right. I, I, I saw like, that and I was like, that what gotta the? be. I was like, this is this a Babylon Bee? Like, what is happening here? <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. It and wasn't. I was like, that actually is such, it's not the hormone that is destructive. Yeah. I mean, first off, women have testosterone too, and having sure. in much having generally though in much smaller quantities. Yeah, fair enough. But it's like testosterone isn't the reason. It's like toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. I've from the beginning been critical of that statement, mm-hmm. not because I don't believe men can be destructive or there is a propensity for men to for their unintegrated trauma. Their, uh, their pain, their hurt. splits, their rejections, their self, you know, all the stuff. It is outwardly more destructive. And mm-hmm. I find women, and these are generalizations, so this isn't going to be true for everybody. Women tend to be inwardly more destructive. And again, I'm not even, I say that just as I'm just thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. We're, you're listening to a conversation, okay? I'm not, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not positive about all these <laughs> things. But but I, as I postulate that, that feels, there feels like there's some truth in there. And yeah. Maybe not. But the toxic masculinity is really just unintegrated trauma or like mm-hmm. lack of integration, lack of um, of healing. Yeah. Just like, you know, the word healing or moves about restoring wholeness. Right. We would never, you said we would never talk about women in a certain way. We would never say toxic femininity. Are there ways that women can express or have uh, how their unintegrated trauma shows up? That it can be toxic to relationships, of course. Yeah. <laughs> because this is about unintegrated humans. Yes. Or traumatized humans. Yeah. And so the idea that testosterone is the what are we just going to have? A testosterone free world? And to be fair, that's with all the plastics we're consuming and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's there going is in that some direction. signs to show that, like, right. I forget what the researcher, but she talks about how fertility in males is plummeting yep. and testosterone rates. And I believe they measure it by the measurement between the testicles and the 
butthole, the, what are they, the choda? Perineum. Yeah, Perineum. the choda, okay? Choda. I mean, that's listen. the scientific term. <laughs> the taint. Okay? Yeah, the, the taint. taint. <laughs> the, that space gets, I think it's shorter yeah. with the less exposure. Yeah, Anyways, there's, I know there's a whole uh, science on that, which is fascinating. I think that if we eradicate the biological differences between men and women, it causes problems in how we relate to one another. Because, you know, if you talk to a boy that's gone through puberty and he has high levels of testosterone and you talk to a girl that's gone through puberty and she has high levels of estrogen, what you'll hear is two completely different experiences mm-hmm. of what it was like to come into womanhood or come into manhood. You know, yeah. like my wife and I have talked about this um, a, a lot. Uh, I remember sharing, it was like, what was your experience like when you went through puberty and you started to like have a menstrual cycle and, and she described this sort of like, and I can, you know, she, I have her permission to talk about these things. I'm not like saying anything that she hasn't talked Everybody about. Everybody must sign an NDA. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, listening right. To this. So she, uh, you know, she's like, well, I was very like emotional and like volatilely emotional. And, and she proceeded to enact, reenact what she was like as a teenage girl talking to her dad, you know, oh my I was gosh. like, holy crap, man, <laughs> like, that's terrifying, you know? And for me, it was like, I'm getting random boners on the bus and in classes <laughs> yeah. and just like hard-ons everywhere and I want to punch holes in walls. Taking longer showers. Taking longer showers <laughs> yeah. for no reason, you know, voices <laughs> cracking. And and so I, I do think that these things sometimes uh, play into it, you know. Yeah. And, and I mean, to vilify a sex hormone is just the most <laughs> fucking absurd thing to me. Not, it's like, like, no offense, James Cameron. Like, if you're listening to this, much love. Love your work. Yes. I'm going to go see Avatar. That just felt really, I mean, in Avatar, tremendous the messaging from Avatar, love. I just felt like that, that feels virtue signally. There's so much, we don't have to get into this, but I just need (laughs) to make this statement, which is there's so much virtue signaling and presentation of virtuosity that it actually almost is completely losing its meaning. I was thinking yeah. that the other day when I was seeing something that Justin Trudeau did again, which that's a whole podcast. You love like, him, don't you? I fucking, You're going to be interviewing him soon. I have a lot of opinions and thoughts and feelings about him, but I will never let him steal my joy. I was just like, it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's so yeah. void of, of depth and, and realness. Just like this, these types of signals, even like I'm getting that, like I'm starting to feel that way. This might be a controversial statement, but I'm starting to feel that way about all the government virtue signaling about climate. Mm. Like there's just part of it I don't trust. Of course, I care about the planet. I love trees. I want to be all part of restoration of Mm -hmm. the earth. Mm -hmm. And we do exploit and extract 100%. But part of it feels agenda-y and it's very profit driven but let's get back to men <laughs> well i think that i think that on that note it's become socially and culturally acceptable to denigrate and demonize whatever you believe to be the problem and so in for some people men or masculinity is the problem right or the patriarchy right as just yeah. a, as just a label is the problem and so whenever you look at somebody and say, or look at something and say, that's the problem, we've almost entered into the space where then it becomes okay for you to be violent towards that thing or that person or that entity or to completely disrespect and denigrate it. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, James Cameron is just a good example 
of of somebody who's fallen into this trap. I mean, imagine saying that, that like estrogen. estrogen is something that you need to extract from your body as a man. I mean, that would just we, we wouldn't socially allow that. It'd be like there'd be It's also just so ridiculous. Yes. Like to me it's just like it's not even grounded in a what that tells me is that and this might not be true for him, but my thought on that would be that that person doesn't actually understand why men are the way they are yes. or why people can be that way. But l- let's say, like, why men can be destructive or fucked up or shoot mm-hmm. up schools and stuff like that, right? These mm-hmm. are all realities. That's not women going and doing that, you know? So it's like, it's not testosterone's fault. You know, it's like Gabor Mate's new book, The Myth of Normal, mm, such you good. know, yeah. where he says, like, all these are symptoms of the problem with an environment. Yeah. Right? Like, and we're not paying the canaries in the coal mine. Yeah. They were going off a while ago. Yeah. And now, like, we have more autoimmune, more everything, obesity, like all these things. And we have all these ways that we treat the symptoms and do drugs to mm-hmm. eat sugar. Everything is monetized on this inability to confront and to blame a hormone right. as opposed to actually it's kind of fucked up. Right now, the world, I think everyone's kind of feeling like, if you watch the news all the time, I don't recommend that, (laughs) but if you did, you're not going to love life. Yes. If you haven't heard me talk about Cozy Earth Sheets before, let me tell you, I'm about to introduce you to the greatest sheets you will ever have touch your body. Anytime someone comes to our house and stays in our guest room, they always want to know what is the bed situation? What are the sheets that we have? Their sheets, their comforters, their duvets, everything is magic. Their bedding is naturally breathable. It's temperature regulating. It's so damn soft. It's ethically sourced viscose from bamboo. It's incredible. And the brand was featured on Oprah's favorite thing, But before that, it was featured on Mark's favorite things. Like, I discovered this brand years ago before I ever even chatted with them about being a sponsor for the podcast. And because I love their product so much, I asked for an exclusive offer for you and you get 40% off site-wide. And now they have pajamas. They have like loungewear. So not only do you get to wrap yourself in the experience of the sheets as clothing, but you then get to get into the bed in that. So you're like double wrapped. And so all you got to do to save 40% off site-wide is use the code GROVES at checkout. So just my last name, G-R-O-V-E-S. So go to CozyEarth.com. C-O-Z-Y-E-A-R-T-H dot com and use the code Groves and you get 40% off all their products. Yes. And, you know, I think, look, I think where I always stand is to try and be a voice for a return to, and when I say return, I don't mean a going backwards historically, but a return to in the sense of finding what that looks like in our culture and our society, a return to the reverence and the honoring of the sacredness of, of men and women and masculinity and femininity as something that isn't dangerous or volatile or hostile or bad or wrong or less than or any of those things. And, you know, people can have differing opinions about what that looks like and and I'm all for that but I think yeah. I think that any time that we take a fundamental component of our reality like being a man or being a woman or masculine or feminine you know these these energies these polarities have been around forever you know and they've been a, a staple part of every religion every society every everything you know every animal every, every animal right? like how the right? universe I mean, just, flowers it just like, exists right it's yeah. a, that polarity is a part of it and so to sort of tie this in I, to to what i write about sometimes and talk about is like everything has 
a shadow. You know, we as individuals have a shadow, a, a sort of darkness. Culturally, there's a shadow. Politically, there's shadows. Even in religions, you know, there's often a shadow. I mean, Osho, if you ever watch that documentary, Wild Wild Country, I mean, there's a there's an individual whose shadow just became who he was, right? He's sort of wearing <laughs> the Rolexes and having <laughs> 42 Rolls Royces and, you know, all this, all this shit and the shenanigans that came out of that. And so I think from a more individual level and then a social level, it's like we have to be willing to look at our own shadow. We have to be mm-hmm. willing to look at, hey, I've been hurt by men. And I get that because a huge reason why I do the work that I do right now is because I also was hurt by men. It doesn't mean I wasn't hurt by women, you know, or heartbroken or any of those things, but I was hurt by men as well, you know? And I start off in my book, I say a man's work begins in pain. That's the first line of the whole book. And I talk about that because I do Mm, think that unequivocally our work as men right now within our culture and our society, we're being called to address our own pain and that we can find purpose in that. We can find meaning. We can find value. But also that when we go on that journey, we can return to culture, society, and our families and be of more contribution to them. And that, that there's an intrinsic value in that. But if we hate who we are, you know, if we've grown up in an environment where we're told, you know, men are all cheaters, men are rapists, men are pieces of garbage, men are just violent and abusive, then it's very hard to reconcile with who you are when who you are and what you've been told is that you are fundamentally broken or flawed. Yeah. And I think a lot of men are carrying around this notion that they need to get away from masculinity and that they need to get away from being a male when there's nothing inherently wrong with those things. It's how you carry them. It's how yes. you present yourself within them. And and I think what a lot of men are actually dealing with is that they are carrying a pain, a, a charge, and an intensity within them that they no one's really taught them how to deal with. Yeah. And the modern rhetoric and solution to that is just be more vulnerable. And that is true sometimes, you know, but it has some limitations, which we can talk about at yeah. some point. But but I do think that in, in many ways, whether you hear men talking or you hear women talking or anything in between, what you'll generally hear is a call from men to address their pain. That is the, that's the general notion of like men, you know, the, the saying hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, if men are are causing a lot of the pain and the hurt that's happening within our world then they're probably hurting and we should probably give them the tools and the resources to work on that hurt and that pain. You know, like when I wrote this book and I brought it out, I remember having calls, I had calls with two of the biggest publishing houses in America and they both said the same thing, which is we love your concept. We love your work. We love the the idea for this book, but men don't buy self-help books. They don't buy Mm self-development books. And I was like, well, maybe you're not printing stuff that they give a shit about. You know, right. like maybe you're not actually producing content that speaks to men, you know, and that you're giving them something that's telling them how they should be or how they should operate and how they should sort of fit into this more feminine oriented way of being, you know, because a lot of the, I might get slack for even saying this, but I, <laughs> I can feel it coming. I think there's a few slacks already. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Spot, so. but I think that in, a, in many ways, what has happened in our culture is that we've all seen that men are struggling, that they're that they're suffering, that they're in decline. You know, less men are going to college, um, more men are living at home, less men are in the workforce than ever before, uh, less men than ever before are sexually intimate 
with a partner between the ages of 18 and 30. It's something like 27% of men, Mark, between 18 and 30 are not sexually active. They're not in a relationship. And it's up three times in the, like, it's up three times from Since, 2010. That makes sense. Since porn right. mainstreamed. Right. So as we see men struggling and suffering, a lot of the solution that's pressed out into our modern dialogue is a very female-centric way of solving the problem. It's like, well, men just need to be more vulnerable. They need to be more emotional. They need, they need to, to talk be more. Become women. Yeah, they need to become more. And I don't mean that as a, women are amazing. Yes, and the way that I agree, women I love communicate women. and make their way through the world. I agree that would be a less destructive way of being. Hundred percent. And I'm curious, like you said about this charge, right? Like. Pain being the, I love that because I agree with that, that women try to commit suicide more, but men are more successful. So more men kill themselves. Yeah. I mean, we, because we choose like, yeah, guns, we're, we're recording off buildings like two days, two days after, uh, Twitch took his life. Yeah. Which is right? wild and which I know has affected a lot of people because outwardly presenting as, and was a source of joy. Yeah. And and I don't know, obviously, I don't know him personally, so I don't know what he was like in his day-to-day, like if he wasn't actually happy. Yeah. But the way he brought a lot of joy to people's lives, and I think so much of the male experience is to silently suffer, you know, which is, I find it hard sometimes to bring my needs or my emotional needs forward in my relationship. Mm-hmm. Because the world doesn't say, men bring your emotional needs forward. Mm-hmm. And I think the strange sort of, paradox or like trap that men are in is that what relationship and the world most needs from them is the thing that the world says you should not have if you want to be a man like Mm. it's in contrast to the definition the sort of inherited definition of masculinity so you have to rebel against what you've been taught and abandon the definition, which is actually healthy, which is liberating in every way. And I think everyone goes through that no matter their gender. But also, that is the thing that will most connect you to your family and your partner and your community. But also there's a lack of trust when men stack into emotion. So (laughs) it's like... That's like Brene Brown. I mean, Brene Brown talked about that in Daring Greatly where she said we put men into a double bind where we tell them, and I like put this passage in the book because I thought it was so important, which is that we, we, we put them on, on this sort of spotlight where we say, we want you to open up, we want you to be vulnerable. But then when men are open and vulnerable, it's often mocked, rejected, they're shamed for it. And not just by men, by women as well. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you look at, again, love him or hate him, right? Regardless of what your perspective is on him, somebody like Jordan Peterson, who is oftentimes very emotionally raw when he's talking and he cries you know? a lot and he and he cries and he gets he gets you know fiery about stuff and angry <laughs> and, and whatnot but if you remove your perspective about him about whether you agree with his opinions and whatnot what you'll notice is that here's somebody here's a man who is respected by a lot of people not respected by some who gets emotional and then is publicly crucified for it yeah you know cnn msnbc people on twitter just destroying him for being emotional. Oh, look, Jordan Peterson's crying again. Yeah. Right? So, and and the context for it is that he's always feeling a, a sense of empathy and compassion for somebody. I do think that that most men know that there's a risk involved with being vulnerable. They know that. They know that they risk losing their partner. They know that they risk losing the respect of the 
uh, you know, if it's a heterosexual relationship of the woman that they're with, they know that they they risk being ostracized or made fun of by people around them. So there's a very real risk for men to open up. And I think a lot of guys know that. You know, generally speaking, what we've done is we've had a culture within male culture that, if you look throughout history, has made it possible for men to share the depths of their being, to talk about their challenges, to talk about their problems, to talk about their pain, to, to have elders within the culture that are supporting them and releasing their grief or releasing mm-hmm. the trauma of having lost a child or a parent or, you know, s- some opportunity or something that m- meant something to them. And instead, what we've replaced it with, and I talk about this in the book, is is this notion within masculine culture that you become a stronger man through suppression, that strength yeah. equals suppression, yeah. that the more that you can stuff shit down the stronger you'll be. And I, I bought into that for a long time. You know, I didn't tell anybody what was going on in my life. And I ended up in a terrible situation, you know, where I had been hiding my own pain, my own trauma, the abuse that I experienced as a kid, and my actions, you know, my infidelities. I cheated in every relationship that I was in because I was hurting, because I was lost, because the only value and excitement and joy that I really found was in these affairs. And it led to my life completely falling apart, you know? And so if you had met me in that phase of my life, I probably would have presented a lot like Twitch. You know, I was very happy on the outside. It looked like I had a great life. I had a great relationship. I was traveling the world. I had the motorcycle and the Mustang and, you know, all the, all the things. But behind the scenes, I was deeply depressed. I was abusing substances. I was abusing um, pornography. I was womanizing and sleeping around and being dishonest and out of integrity. And all that came because no one in my life, no one in my childhood, and it makes me emotional because I know how many men struggle with this, no one in my life showed me what to do with that pain, with the hurt that I'd been carrying around. No one told me, like, it's okay for you to, to bring these things forward. And, and when I say that specifically, I mean no man was in my life mm. because there was an absence of masculinity. There was an absence of fatherhood in my life that was deeply damaging to me. And I think, you know, I, I write about it in the book as well, is that there's a kind of like a plague of absent fathers within our culture. And that that absence creates a hole within a lot of children that they don't know what to do with, at least for me. You know, and I think for a lot of men that I've worked with over the last decade, I've worked with tens of thousands of men now, they carry within them this really deep pain of being neglected by the man that they ultimately wanted to be around or abandoned by him or abused by him or to watch him live a half-meaningful life, you know. And so I think in some ways that's part of the other call is to is to not abandon ship on masculinity or or being a man, but actually to turn towards the healing that's being asked of us. What do we need to face? What pain, what suffering, what darkness do we actually need to face in order to reconcile our relationship with our masculinity mm. and, and claim it and own it so that it's safe and it's healthy and it's potent in a way that contributes to culture and society rather than causing it to be a threat? That's beautiful. This reorientation instead of trying to eradicate or erase masculinity, actually heal. Yeah. Which, you know, if 
if masculinity needs healing, femininity needs healing. You know, and I, I just mean that if one is wounded, the other is. Totally. Because in order for one to be wounded, the other has to be wounded. Like, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. You know, and I, I think it's fascinating sort of evolutionarily that if you— I wonder at what moment, and I think we're still in it, but at what moment— we sort of woke up to the being empathic to the way that evolution drove mm. war and, and survival and, like, you know, the true instincts, you know, that I think we're at battle with sometimes, you mm-hmm. know, is like using conscious choice versus following just the, like, desire, right? right? Like, oh, I have butterflies with that person. It's like, well, you could still choose not to be with them, right? Yeah. Like there's Or to text them or, or you know, <laughs> hit them up on Instagram or whatever right. it is. <laughs> you don't have to swipe right to everything. Yeah. And and I guess that's more of that sort of chasing, but 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 appealing to what feels like an evolutionary drive versus what is actually good mm. for us. And you know, I think of like uh, that spider. I think it's the is it a spider? Maybe the praying mantis that after it bangs, it, then the woman eats the black man's. widow. Yeah, the black, the black widow. widow. Yeah. And you know, at some point, if the black widow develops empathy, consciousness, and con- <laughs> consciousness beyond what it has, yeah, it will be like. Fuck, oh, I just ate, <laughs> just ate Bob's head. At what point were we just going about being a species that we woke up to the impact of just being a species, you know, like mm. to what it was evolutionarily serving us, mm-hmm. you know, like it still maybe pre 50 years ago, yeah. it served us to send only men to war. And it served us to send men to die. And so the things that we actually wanted from men, which is a lack of emotionality but access to rage, mm-hmm. serve us, served us. And that served us tribally when we were at war that, you know, and I guess still on some level can. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think that's shifting how we handle conflict and all that. I, I mean, ideally, uh, obviously not everywhere and not all right now. But I wonder, like, that shift of, I think we're still in an awakening, well, we're in a massive up-leveling right now, but I wonder at what point we're all sort of waking up to the impact. Like, we grew up often with fathers or fathers' fathers Mm. who didn't, there was no space for emotionality. They're working on a farm 18 hours, they're in a factory, they're in a, they're just trying to, they're covered in coal, you know, like... They're just trying to survive. I can just hear, for some reason, I can only hear Donald Trump saying, clean coal. <laughs> <laughs> clean coal. I, was I like, mean, oh, he's a good example have of a lot his, of things. Have you seen his NFTs that just came I out? I saw that How? he just dropped them, and he said, I'm one of the best presidents, better than right, Lincoln. Better than Lincoln, better than Washington. He's got, the, he's got him and the like, superhero. But I think, you know, here's a character that is so polarizing when it comes to men and masculinity. You know, so revered by some, and and I I think I think it's a little bit different than men and masculinity because I think in many ways he is more uh, an embodiment of dictator and leader. You know, I don't yeah. think that that's actually about being a man or being masculine. I think that's more about what it means to be a leader within the world, and yeah. I, I think it's a little bit different. But it, he's such a, a f- fascinating character. I mean, just as like a psychological study, I agree. Like. A lot of people, I was reading a funny tweet or meme the other day where it said, remember when you could disagree with a friend and you'd still be friends? Yes. Did you see that one? I don't know if I saw it, but I've I've talked about that. It was like just, yeah. Five years ago, I knew people who voted for Trump, and I'm Canadian, so I was kind of separate from it. I was like, oh, I can't believe 
Because yeah. that was classic Canadian, too. Like, we don't have our shit, and now we got a bunch <laughs> of it. But it's like classic, you know, American, voting for Trump, blah, blah, judgy, so this is not me today. Yeah. But it ended up creating this sort of polarity of uh, if you— there's something about Trump that I'm— Instead of being like, you voted for Trump, you are all these other things. Right. You voted for Biden, you're all these other things. You voted for Trudeau, you're all these, whatever, right? Like, yeah. it's all it's all the same shit on all the sides. Yeah. But what I think is interesting is if we start to orient towards that from a place of, okay, tell me what is it that appeals to you? Mm. Because his polarity appeals to people, and he appeals to the, like, person who feels like they haven't been seen, heard, loved have space in the world and whether they're valid to feel that way or not i'm mm-hmm. not getting into that debate mm-hmm. but my curiosity is what is it about these different movements or these different political things and coming back to the idea of men is what are our outlets to even like when you talk about men and men's work and mm-hmm. us turning towards healing this pain which is much like healing this crazy divide that exists politically, uh, policy-wise, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, I just feel like division has just been amplified. Yeah, massively. Yeah. yeah, and it's like how, I think the same thing as, like, wanting to sit with love with someone who we don't agree with, mm. how do we do that between men and women? How do we do, you know what I mean? It's yeah. all the same. It's all, a, how do we build a fucking bridge? Right. And, like, women aren't going to save us. You know, they've been over-functioning a lot to sort of carry the families. And (laughs) you said there's an absence of parents. And even when men are there, they're not Not there emotionally. And and there's evolutionary, political, cultural reasons. How do we even, like that journey, how do we even begin or continue? Like, what does it look like? Solve the world's yeah, solve problems, the world's if you problems. wouldn't mind. We were recording this and not drinking, so we'll remember, right. which is really beautiful. <laughs> I, neither of us drink, so Sober for years now, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, just not to go too past, too far past the, the Trump NFTs and cards. I think what was interesting when I saw them was this him dressed up as a superhero. Dude. You know, a and thin so, superhero. A, I was thin, like, a buff did... superhero. I was like, dude, you... <laughs> a buff superhero. You know, like, come on, With man. great... With a full head of hair. With a full head a... of hair. But I think, you know, in in our Western culture, I, I think that we're going through a period of sort of dissolving and falling apart, you know, and so older structures are breaking down. But I think that in many ways, what I see happening is in the absence of fatherhood, there's this yearning for that masculine energy. It doesn't go away, right? I remember being a boy at, you know, six, seven years old and my parents had divorced when I was three and I would cry all the time at night Mm. trying to get my mom to call my dad and trying to find ways for me to go and see him and be around him. And so there there was this void within me that was so visceral and so painful that to have him not around like left this this deep scar within me that just always felt open you know this wound that always felt open that i could just feel constantly and so when i look at our our world today what i see is a manifestation of that absent fatherhood just running rampant within our culture and that's why i say we there has to be some form of return to masculinity so that we can honor that men can honor themselves in a way to be present fathers because it's such an important role. And so I think people like 
Jordan Peterson as an example, or even Donald Trump to some extent, become this kind of archetypal father figure that gets lifted up within the public square, within the, you know, within the public dialogue, because people are so hungry for father energy. You know, they're just so hungry for fatherhood that to have somebody like Peterson say, make your bed, which is so simple, right? But it's, it's order, it's clear, you know, and it's just very direct. And so I think there's a lot of people that are like, I want that, you know, I need that energy in my life. I need that clarity and that assertiveness and that direction. So I think, you know, for many of us that, for many of the men that are in modern culture, you know, Mm -hmm. part of the work that I do, why I do is to give a direction of here's a way for you to find fulfillment. You know, here's a way for you to contribute to your family in a different way. That's not just about earning money. That's about showing up with presence and being grounded and not passing on your trauma or your pain to your kids or your friends or your wife or, you know, whoever it is around you that you really love. And I think that that's, that's meaningful in many ways. You know, we've talked about, I think we both interviewed Francis Weller. And, you know, he talks about this extensively about how this is the role that initiation used to play for men, was that in, in some way, shape, or form, it would bring a man through an experience of powerlessness so that he understood how to be responsible for his power. Mm. Right, so like he's brought to his knees in some way. Yeah, you're because, but it, through initiation in in the tribe, initiation like, in the tribe amongst other men. Yeah, you know, a part of the village, but designed, designed, right? And so, which my, is so powerful. My theory is contained initiation. Contained initiation. My theory is that you know we we as young boys and young men need these what I call little eye initiations to prep us for the capital I initiation that only life can bring us. You know, the moments in life where you just are taken out by the knees, you know, where the heartbreak is so raw that you don't know how to deal with it, where the, you know, person that you thought you're going to spend your life with suddenly is like, I'm out, you know, I'm I'm leaving you. Or you lose a parent or you lose a child or your health starts to falter or the career that you've built falls apart. You know, it's in those moments where we feel where life literally puts us in the most powerless, helpless, grief-oriented position that we've had some training as men to know how to face and confront that. And I, I think that that's part of what's missing within our culture is having men who have kind of gone through this journey of saying, okay, I've walked into the cave of my own bullshit, <laughs> you yeah. know, of my own pain, my own suffering, you know, the bad decisions that I've made, the addictive behaviors, you know, the the bullying that I received at school, the heartbreak, the infidelities. I've walked through those things and I've come out the other side much more competent and capable and fulfilled and whole. Because that's, you know, if you look at any good myth, that's what happens is that by going into the darkness, you can find some kind of gold. And what we're talking about is psychological gold, right? Yeah. The, the gold of a deeper sense of authenticity, the gold of wholeness, you know? And it's not that it's, that's a destination to be a, a, a sort of achieved and arrived at, but that walking that path, that the journey towards that is deeply rewarding and fulfilling and that there's purpose and meaning in that. You know, you hear people, there's like 300,000 books about purpose, 
you know, <laughs> like 300,000 books on Amazon, all about purpose. You know, well, a lot of guys come to me and they're like, I don't know what my purpose in life is and I don't know what I should be doing. And, and I usually say, start with your pain. Start with the thing that feels really hard for you to look at. And in the process of doing that, you will show yourself physically, emotionally, and psychologically that you are capable of doing the hard thing that you didn't think you were able to do before. Mm. And that, that level of psychological competence is so valuable in our life as men. You know, when a lot of guys say, I don't feel confident, that's what they're actually saying is I don't feel competent enough or capable enough to face my inner dialogue, my inner critic, the fact that I beat the shit out of myself constantly. You know, they're afraid of these parts that live within them and they, they don't really want to face them. They aren't willing to face them. And for me, those are the things that in my life fundamentally held me back. You know, I had honestly the worst inner dialogue. I was more abusive to myself internally than anybody had ever been to me externally. And so I had to reconcile with the fact that there was this part of me that was very vicious and hostile. And I do this exercise at, at men's weekends where I'll, I'll get two men to sit across from each other. I'll get all the men at the men's weekend to sit across from each other. And I'll say, write down what your inner dialogue sounds like, your inner critic, when it's being the harshest with you. And then once they're all done, I'll say, okay, the, one of you is going to go first. And you're going to speak to that other man from that inner dialogue, from wow. that inner critic. And the resistance that most men have is so like visceral, right? They're like, I don't want to talk to that guy like that. Like he doesn't deserve it. He's a good guy. I love him. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I've, actually, I've come to get to know him. Like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt him like that. I would that. never speak to I someone I would never else. speak to somebody yeah. else like that. And it's like, but the truth that most men are living is that they are living in a kind of prison internally. One where the guards, the inner critic are violent you know, where they are literally violent towards themselves. Like psychological abuse to yeah. themselves. And, and a lot of it's because, again, we don't have this culture of being with men in a way where our anger is acceptable, you know, where we can understand that there's sometimes value in anger, right? David White, famous poet, I think yeah. you know him, he said that anger is the, is the deepest form of care. And, and, to, and you need access to it. And you need access That's to it, That's what changes right? the world. So... You know, I think and ourselves. I think part of this is that we there's kind of like a reclamation process that men need to turn towards masculinity and turn towards healing and what that might look like for them and go on a journey of asking themselves what that means to them, you know, what masculinity is for them and and how they can express that within their lives versus seeing it as the you know, the James Cameron notion of that's the thing that needs to be extracted and killed off within within you and, and inside right. of you. Because which is just more of the compartmentalizing, more of the imprisoning. Yes. You know, which which is again the problem. Yeah. Because it's like, well, if the world's not gonna welcome you, you know, perceptionally, mm -hmm. men's groups can. That are based on actually being places I think AA really modeled like was maybe one of the first places uh that really said, okay, well, everyone has the right to tell their story and actually not just the right, we need you to tell it. Yeah. And that's part of the healing. Like I remember going to AA with uh, a good friend of mine and I was like, this is like TED Talks. Like it was so <laughs> inspiring. <laughs> it was actually pretty funny because my friend was like, okay, listen, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to bring someone today, but come and 
they're going to ask you, they might ask you if you want to share. Mm. And your answer has to be, I'm just here to listen. Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, I got this. Like, I was made <laughs> to be an actor. And then I was sitting there, and, like, there's a hundred people in the crowd. And the guy looks over at me like, hey, do you want to share? And I was like, uh, like, look around. I'm like, who, me? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm just here to listen. <laughs> It was the worst. <laughs> and my friend was like, you're awful. You said you had that. Anyways, it, I found it to be such a powerful and potent. I hadn't actually heard men yeah. express pain yeah. on that level. And a group of both men and women mm. be just like, we love you so much. Mm. Like, you're safe here. And I think of the initiatory process. I can't remember. Is it the Maasai? People, I can't remember, but where they actually take, I think it's at 13, and they take and they paint the, I think it's the boys, but maybe mm. boys and girls. They paint them black, mm. and then they're to be ignored right. that day in the tribe. Yeah. And then they're they're given a new name. Yeah, afterwards, yeah. And they are, they're now men. Yeah. I think it is just the boys. I can't remember, though. But in it, what was fascinating is that now, what comes with the initiation, the contained initiation, where I can't remember the other parts of it, is I now have a responsibility. I'm no longer a boy. I now have a yes. responsibility to the tribe that, and to the people. To the collective, yeah. Yeah, and I think you're, you know, you're dead on in saying that. That is missing. Most of our fathers haven't been through contained initiations. I mean, Francis Weller talks about how we live in an immature culture, like an adolescent culture, yeah. which is very true. Yeah. And maybe that's why we, you know, you know, we eradicated or attempted as colonizing people to eradicate indigenous ways, which mm-hmm. was very much about initiation and reverence for plants and and the salmon and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. It all seems to come back to the same. It's like the colonizing of ourselves, you Mm -hmm. know, of our essence. So in men's work, like this, so can you tell people the title of your book and all that stuff? Just so. It's just called Men's Work. Perfect. Um, (laughs) It's it's, it's called Men's Work and then the subtitle is uh, Facing Your Darkness, Ending Self-Sabotage and Finding Freedom. Perfect. So everybody, go pick it up. For men and women? You know, it's it's for men and about men, but I think that any woman who reads the book is going to... So my, my editor was a woman, and she was like, I, I hope that every woman buys this book because I have learned so much about my boyfriend and my uh, my brother and my father, and she ended up sending them copies of the books. And so, you know, I, I wrote it specifically to be from men, for men, and about men. Sense, yeah. But I, every woman that has picked it up and read it has absolutely loved it and learned a ton because I'm not, first off, I want to clarify, I'm not telling men how to be. I'm not telling them what masculinity is. And I'm not telling them, here's how you should treat women, which I think is what most books for men usually do. They do one of those things. Here's how you should be a man. Here's what masculinity is, or here's what women want. And I do none of those three things in the book. It really is a process of uh, a kind of like self-guide that a man can walk himself through to essentially lead himself more effectively, to learn to lead himself more effectively. And he might learn, you know, about who he becomes in relationship to women. And he might learn some of those pieces about why he becomes needy or um, avoidant or shut down. And women are certainly going to learn 
I would say, at least based on the, the women that have read the book so far, are going to learn a lot about why we as men are the way we are because of culture, because of the, the male pressures that we put on ourselves, and just, you know, how we as men operate and think. I think that's super valuable because for me, I've consumed, I mean, just off the top of my head, I've consumed three books that were specifically written for women. Totally. And they were so helpful in understanding why women have a challenging time accessing anger and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I think to, it just gives us more compassion when we're in relation to, yeah. you know, like in reading and being part of your work, but also being in, in a men's group with you. I get to be broadened through the experience of what you teach because mm. then even being in relationship with you but in the other men in the group and just with other men, with my brother, with my dad, there is more compassion. And I know when we, you know, I think when we're talking about starting to turn towards taking responsibility for our lives and claiming purpose, turning towards our pain, I think no matter the person we're talking about, there is first apart, and maybe we get stuck here hmm. in this part of, but the world did this to me. Like, I think for a lot of men, that's often like, yeah, but the world says I'm toxic. The world, my dad mm -hmm. was a piece of shit. My mm -hmm. this, my that. The, the, I'm Masculinity is bad. We're all rapists. We're all murderers. Like, what's the point? Mm. And it's like, we all have traumas occur to us, some much more significant than mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. And I think often what feels when we start to say, I'm going to take responsibility for everything in my life. There's this idea that that is the negation of the pain that we've had. Like, mm. but it isn't my fault. And it's like, you're right. Actually, mm -hmm. it isn't. And and maybe some really bad things have happened to you due to a lot of things. But you're the one who's got to do, you're the one who's got to do the, you know, like, cook it. You're mm -hmm. the one who's got to change. And there's also when you decide to do that as a person, but I think, you know, as a man, my experience in that is there is such, there's an exhale that happens because it's like, oh, yeah, like, my partner's not going to make me read a book or trick me into listening to another <laughs> podcast. Or I'm going to do that, yeah. right? And I think sometimes our love for somebody can be enough, you know, much like in addiction where it's yeah. like you get the intervention and yeah. you're like, holy fuck. Like there's so much love present here. Like why is it not present here? Right. So yeah, can you speak to what, what you think about what I just said. There's no question in that. It's just a, <laughs> a request. Just I'm making uh, a bid. Just a, I'm making a bid, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A few statements and some observations. So two things. One, if we hold the belief, and this is just the framework that I have because I I come from a very Jungian framework. And, and by the way, Jung has a, had a heavy influence on AA. Mm -hmm. um, the founder of, of AA, I believe it was his brother or, or he himself, um, had worked with Carl Jung oh, cool. in sessions and was working with him specifically on his addiction. And Jung said, you don't have a problem. Like you, you, essentially, like you're never going to heal what is ailing you until you come into relationship with God or until you write your relationship with something that's bigger than you. Yeah. And so when we have that kind of wound of life did this to me, you know, in some ways, that's mm. like saying something bigger than me is always going to come and fuck my shit up. It's always going to get in the way. And whether you want to call that God, whether you want to call that life, whether you want to call that source or universe or whatever word you put on that, there's a relationship there. 
And so what you're saying is I don't have a right relationship with the energy or the source that's bigger than me that brought me here. And that's, you know, that, that is a very specific wound to carry. So when we stop blaming the nameless, we can actually take accountability for the self. And there's a, there's a kind of empowerment and an autonomy and sovereignty that comes along with saying, all right, God, all right, life, all right, source, I've been blaming you for a long time. I've been a victim to what I thought was your circumstances. And rather than continuing to blame you, I'm going to take ownership over what I can possibly do about it. Yeah. And we start to draw some lines around what Stephen Covey called the, the circle of influence, right? What we can influence and what we can't influence. Oh, I forgot about the circle. Right? Okay. And it's just this very simple model where we can start to see, can I do something about this? Can I affect change in this? Can I take ownership over this? Or am I fixating on something that I have zero control over? Which is where a lot of us as men struggle is that we've, you know, we've been taught to over-index the rational mind. Hmm. And so we think that every single freaking problem in our life can be solved with what's between our ears and we disconnect from the the wisdom and the intelligence of our body of our heart of our gut and that gut intelligence that intuitive intelligence is our connection to the world around us right that's our direct felt experience we have to sort of get right with that and then i think the other thing that you said that stood out was this notion of I don't trust men, I don't trust masculinity, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that a lot of men do carry that wound around men or around masculinity. And the challenge becomes... Unconsciously, I didn't even know. 100%. But I think the, the main problem that I think all men need to come into contact with that have that wound is that if you do not trust men fundamentally, if you really get honest with yourself and you're like, actually, I don't trust men, you know, I, and I don't trust the masculine, well, you're a man. And so what you're really saying is, right. I don't trust me. Fundamentally, I do not trust me. When push comes to shove, something wrong with me. there's something wrong with me. So that man that's carrying that belief, men are bad, men are dangerous, men are this, you know, men only hurt women. There's a rejection of who they naturally are at their core. Yeah. There's a rejection of what they are at their core. And that rejection will naturally create this kind of dissonance within them. And when you really start to question some of their actions, in specifically within relationship, what it will really come down to and what they'll almost always talk about is, I don't trust myself. You know, I just don't trust myself. Well, why not? Because I don't like myself. Well, how come? Well, because I don't like who I am as a man or I don't like who I am as a father or as a husband or as a partner, right? Well, how come? And then you just dig a little bit deeper and what you'll find is, well, I was you know, my father left me, you know, or I didn't get time with him. Like a lack of worth. A lack of worth, right? Or my mom constantly told me how bad men were. You know, she constantly told me, you know, not to be like my father. That's a that's something that a lot of men hear. So common. And so they, so what are they doing? They try and construct a personality that is in some ways almost devoid of masculinity, you know? Like it's like trying to put a compartment again, that compartmentalization, it's like, Putting a like, putting it in a box, right? Putting it in the closet and being like, "We don't have to worry about that. I'm a yeah. really nice guy." <laughs> right, and then and then they become nice guys, and then they they get pissed off at the women in their life for being assertive, for being direct, for having boundaries. They get reactive and needy for um, not expressing their own wants and needs because they're operating from this place of I'm deficient or defective, 
and I'm saying this all from personal experience, right? So yeah. I'm not talking about men in general. I'm actually talking about myself in my past and who I was. I want to make that super clear. So maybe I should just operate from that place. So, so I would come from that place when I was disliking my own masculinity, didn't trust men because men had hurt me. How I would operate with women in my life was, I'm going to hurt you, you know? And you, so you shouldn't be around me. And so I would do things to push them away whether it was acting needy or constantly wanting their validation or sabotaging the relationship or whatever it was. And largely it had nothing to do with them. Some of the relationships weren't right for sure. <laughs> you know, some of them I definitely shouldn't have been in. But for the most part, I didn't know who I was and I didn't trust who I was. And because I was carrying around this pain of I was hurt by men and I don't trust men, it was very hard for me to simply settle in to the depth of experience of being a man, of being a man that a woman could trust. You know, it was very uncomfortable to think I can be a man that's trustworthy yeah. because all that I knew was men who were harmful or would abandon or were abusive. You know, that's, that's the framework that I had operated from. And so I had to get right with my relationship with men and I had to heal that and I had to forgive certain men and I had to let go of the debt that I thought that they owed me and I had to reconcile with the pain that I had caused as a man you know the hurt that I had passed on to women through infidelities through lies through betrayals that's a lot of work <laughs> you it know, is. That's not, it's well, not that's a, facing the darkness that's facing like, the darkness yeah and if you don't excavate that, like if you don't turn towards that and accept it, which isn't saying what you did was okay, because I think that's often confusing. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, if I turn towards it and I go, okay, well, I love this part of me, but this part of me has been destructive. And it's still, destru yeah, right. it's still destructive. Right. Yeah. And if you don't turn towards it, it will still unconsciously steer, because you'll be afraid to touch it all the time. And then it comes out in these weird, fucked up ways. But like, <laughs> how do we ever... Like, we try to soothe it with porn. We try to soothe it with these other things that, of course, we recognize in the sort of, like, post-ejaculatory wallowing. Post-not clarity. Right. Can we, post talk about, clarity. Can, can we talk about porn? Can we? Because I write about it in the book. Can yeah, we? yeah. I wanted to say, though, that, like, that's where our partnership needs us to go because for the partnership to deepen, we have to confront those things because what intimacy demands is all of that. Mm -hmm. And so many men, when their partner, whether same gender or not, mm -hmm. uh, but especially women, when they're like, hey, like, I want to talk about this, or I want to go to therapy, or like, hey, this behavior is destructive, or, mm -hmm. or whatever, the men just like, close down, shut down, do whatever, hey, this is just life, like, if you don't, you know, you knew what you're getting into, or whatever it is which I'm sure that happens on the other side. But it's like, they then their partners leave them. Yeah. And then they're like, hey, I'm ready to do the work. Yeah. And it's like, don't wait for them because by the time <laughs> a person leaves you, a woman leaves you, she's already gone. You know, generally, not always, but generally. But I think it, it, it's tough because I think that a lot of, like I was convinced 
that the only way change would occur is, is, is if I would bottom out. Like, I was convinced, Mark, that the only way change would happen like you in my were life planning. is like, I fucking rock bottom. I'm going to rock bottom. And I think and a, lot of, change. a lot of men have that. A lot of men carry this idea and they hold this belief in their head that they cannot change until something so monumental happens they and blindsides to. them, right? So it's kind of, I call it like a, a pseudo-initiation, a forced initiation, where they're, they put themselves into this rock-bottom position where things are so bad, where they've blown up their life, where they have to kind of recover from it, where they're so powerless and hurt that they then have to build from the wreckage. And so some men fundamentally believe, like I did, that they need to bottom out. Why did you believe you needed to, like... What because was, I thought that's what I deserved. I thought it's uh, what I deserved, right? So I thought I even deserved. even though you're like, I could change right now. Yeah. You're like, I actually deserve... Yes. ...to potentially even be eradicated. Yeah. Like, it, it was there thoughts of needing to be... Yeah. ...exterminated, maybe the wrong word, but like... No, I thought... I that thought like, about, if I left the world, the world won't be upset about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought about taking my own life... Um, once or twice when I was younger, you know, once when I was like 14 and things were really bad and my family system was, I felt lost in between my family systems. I grew up between two families and I bounced back and forth. And my, my experience as a kid was that there was these two complete family systems that I didn't fit into, that I didn't belong in either of them. Your parents divorced when I was married and then they married other people and then they both had a daughter and they both had a son and so there was these two identical family systems. Nuclear families. Nuclear families that I bounced between. Were. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And there was that moment. And then, you know, when my, when everything fell apart in my life, I didn't, you know, my girlfriend found out I'd been cheating and um, I was contemplating leaving my career and the sort of facade that I created that my life was so great just completely crumbled. And I didn't want anybody to know. I didn't want my friends to know. I didn't want my family to know. And so she moved out with one of her friends and I packed up all my shit. I put it into a storage unit and I went and lived in the back of my car. And I talk about it in the book. I talk about how, you know, what I like I called sunrises in Chateau Walmart, <laughs> you know, like waking up, waking up in the back of my 2007 Pontiac G5, you know, this two door coupe that I had. Not built for a six foot two. Yeah. Two. No. Dude. I'm five, eight yeah. on a good day. And it would not, not be comfortable. I know. I slept in a car once in Banff after staying out. But and that was not fun. But you know, and so I I contemplated it in that moment as well because I don't know who said it, but somebody said suicide is the ultimate form of self-destruction. Mm-hmm. You know, this this desire to to annihilation, to obliteration, just yeah. not be here anymore. And I think I had gotten to this place where the image that I created and the facade I created had fallen apart. And what I was left with was just, was just the hurt that I had been running from mm. for so long. And that you couldn't, there was couldn't no avoid. escape. There was no yeah. avoiding it anymore. You know, there was no avoiding it. My hope is that in, in men reading this book, that they stop the descent. You know, they stop like, the descent. They challenge the, they challenge the notion that they have to implode their lives in order to create change. Change will require that things fall apart for sure. But that just might be your old stories and narratives and beliefs. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the entirety of your life. In that few weeks that I spent living on the back of my car, it was, it was a very dark time. And I think I just came to, like I remember this one night at the very end of it, laying in the back, looking out at the stars, blanket over top of me, 
you know, <laughs> freezing my ass off. The backseat of a two-door? The backseat of a two-door coupe. Damn. And just contemplating whether I should end it or whether I should carry on. And thankfully, in some strange way, it was like the knowing that I would had that this was where I was headed anyway, that this rock bottom was coming for years. Um, there was almost some kind of salvation in that. Like a relief? Like a relief. Yeah, yeah. like a sigh. Like, like I got here. <laughs> like I, I made it, wow. you know? And it was like the car crash that I had been watching happening in slow-mo for years. Yeah. And so when the car crash happened, you know, it's almost like I just needed to to be with the the truth of the the shit that I'd been running from for so long. And, you know, I ended up having conversations with men in my life after that. And thankfully, I had a mentor in my life at that time. He was, you know, in his mid-70s. And I ended up spending two and a half years working with him and learning learning about Jungian psychology and Gestalt and CBT and, so and, Bud- and Buddhism, you know. Yeah. He ended up turning into, like, my, my like, little Yoda, you know, this, like, <laughs> little French-Canadian Yoda that that really like saved my life in a lot of ways you know yeah. and in that apprenticeship i got a sense of what it was like to be in relationship with a man in who was an elder in a very healthy way you know where it it wasn't about him necessarily um even though the way it was set up is i would i would support him you know like i would pay him wherever i could uh, for his time and for his help and for for his mentorship, and then when I couldn't, he would ask me to chop wood and help <laughs> with his asparagus farm yeah. and you know stuff like that. And so, um, so I so I'm fortunate, but I think that a lot of men, when they don't tend to this wound and when they continue to pretend like the wound isn't there, there's this notion that it's noble to suffer in silence. And that, that that actually is like contributing yeah. to the masculinity. Yeah, and so, like that's interesting. That's a, a tough. In the in the book, place. I talk about the myth of male suppression, the the myth of male separation, and this notion that if you can just separate as a man from your hurt, from your pain, from your anger, from your anxiety, from the shit that you don't like, right? Whatever it is internally that you don't like, if you can just get far enough away from it, that that will embolden you as a man. But what it actually does is just weaken you, right? Your capacity to be strong and confident as a man is actually in getting closer to the grief, closer to the hurt or the anger or the anxiety that you're experiencing. It's actually about learning to walk yourself and shepherd yourself towards those things that you're actually afraid of. We as men have a very peculiar relationship with our own fear. And so we often blind ourselves to the things that we're really afraid of. You know, I was afraid of my pain because I had seen in the past where it it had taken hold of me to such a degree where I was a teenager where I I contemplated taking my own life. And so I'd sort of been running from that for a long time. And so we have to be willing to move towards our fears psychologically, relationally, you know. I mean, the amount of men that come and work with me in relationship what I'm usually looking for is, what are you afraid of? Yeah. And when you get down to it, a lot of us are just afraid of real intimacy because we, it's almost like we don't, we don't know how to be with the feminine aspects within ourselves. And to be with a beautiful feminine creature outside of us is, can be very terrifying, you know, because they can see us, 
You know, they can, oh, under, they can see when we're, you know, we're, we're off or they can feel into what's going on sometimes before we've even caught that. I can't stand it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so. such a gift, but with every gift is, because there's a call that's constantly there. Yes. You know, and, and it's beautiful. That's, uh, that's why I think relationships, relationships are kind of the ultimate, uh, container for growth and there's nothing else that will consistently call you forward like that probably parenting Jung, too. Jung said that marriage is the fastest horse the fastest horse to individuation which means it's the like it's the fastest horse towards wholeness and you can replace marriage with relationship I think yeah. within our modern culture but yeah so earlier you were saying that we often think vulnerability is the path to men healing mm. or like sharing how they feel and you said uh, something along the lines of that's not totally true. Mm. And so I'm curious what were your, because you said you were, were going to share mm-hmm. what those were. And I was like, that's going to be a good one. I want to <laughs> know. So, yeah, what is what are your sort of further thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I have a chapter. I talk about the myth of male vulnerability. And it's not that I don't think it's part of the equation, I just don't think that it's the cure-all solution that it's being presented as, right? I do think that a part of a man's work and journey is going to call him into transparency and to be open and to be vulnerable about those things, you know, about the his past, about his actions and his choices, about, you know, where he's struggling or suffering. I, I do think that there is merit in that, but I don't think that that's the only thing that, men are dealing with it's it's much more complex than that for a lot of guys you know i think the first step like again i'll just talk about jung because it's sort of like the framework that i usually operate from he said that the first step in any therapeutic process is confession and so i think that in order for a man to start his journey there's some form of vulnerable confession or admission that he will have to undertake Mm. and whether it's the admission that he's depressed or he's miserable at his work, or he's unhappy in his marriage, or that he's been unfaithful, or um, that he's been, you know, carrying around the betrayal and the hurt from his childhood, or whatever it is, right? Whatever that admission is, I do think that that requires a certain level of vulnerability. I think after that, it's there are many different pieces that require that man to that the work looks different after that. You know, it's a process of looking at his relationship to men and masculinity, looking at the shadow of his father, looking at his relationship to women, you know, and and that a lot of what men are actually being asked to do is develop certain certain skills within themselves. You know, like, for example, that um, uh, the example that I gave before of a man's inner critic, Mm-hmm. you know, and how vicious he can be towards himself and that yeah. exercise that I was talking about. Some men simply just haven't learned the skill of compassion, you know, mm-hmm. and that that can be a skill that he can that he can execute, that he can be, begin to actually build and develop within himself that will serve him and his life in a very valuable way. And so I do think that some of it is about vulnerability. I think that's that's generally at the, that's like front-loaded, you know, it's the beginning of a man's journey. And then I do think that there's some of it that requires him to be incredibly bold and courageous, you know, to confront the, maybe the the truth of the relationship that he had with his father, 
to step into spaces where he can communicate his grief to other men, to develop the skills within himself that will allow him to feel more competent and more fulfilled. You know, I think that some men, like we, we live in a very domesticated society in modernity, right? Modernity sort of pitches this notion that you'll be happy if you can just relax into mediocrity. Yeah. You know, if you can just let life happen to you. Become a good provider. Just because, yeah, that's it, right? And so, so I think the, the other part is that men, again, like I said in the beginning, men respond to calling. They respond to a call. And sometimes that's a very different frame than you just need to be vulnerable. For some men, it, it really is that they want to develop competency in something, whether that's competency within their body or within their mind, mm. or developing like creativity, yeah, like creativity and art accessing, form. Uh, it could be martial arts, martial arts, which I think is a really powerful foundational method for a lot of men because they yeah. learn order and power, but but contained power. Yeah, in a yeah, in a in a sort of directed way. So I, I think that that certainly part of it is about revealing and vulnerability and authenticity, but it that's not the whole thing. You know, it's not the complete sort of arc of what a man's work will be. I think the other part is that, like I was saying, if you can develop certain skills in your life as a man, that can be very rewarding because we as men do want to contribute. Men want to contribute to their family. They want to contribute to their friends and to society. And so being able to discern where you can contribute and what skills that you possess or want to cultivate so that you can contribute is deeply rewarding yeah. you know like i've watched you as an example build this podcast and have these conversations and you have doubled down on deepening your skill as an orator you know something that you already were gifted at like i i think i said before like you just have this this capacity and this ability to really speak to people in this wonderful way that that people really hear and listen but i've watched you actually deepen that skill and from the outside, at least, and through our conversations, it's looked like you have been rewarded for that internally in terms of fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. And so I think a lot of men, also a part of their work, is to be able to find ca capability within some of the skills that they can then contribute to life and the world and their family and the people around them to find a sense of meaning and purpose. And that that will broaden who they are and it will broaden their their perspective on how they fit into the world and that that's an equal part of their healing and we don't often look at it from that from that place that developing competency in something is a very healing approach you know if i love painting but i suck at it i can actually use painting as a modality for my for my healing whether that's you know psychologically um, or just as a means of creative expression. And so as I develop that skill, and as I develop competency in that area of painting, I will um, feel a much deeper connection to a sense of self-worth. And I think a lot of men that I've worked with over the years are walking around with very deep questioning at the very least, and on the other end of the spectrum, a very deep wound within their sense of their own worth. And that's not necessarily about vulnerability. Part of it is, but the other part is, is really about competency and skill and, and discipline, you know? And I think a lot of guys grew up like me where I grew up that discipline is a form of punishment, mm. you know? And so I hated being disciplined. Like yeah. I just freaking hated it. 
And that left me feeling very challenged and and incapable of being able to contribute to the things that mattered to me or feeling confident in myself or respecting myself. And so writing my relationship with discipline and seeing it as something that's a practice versus something that's a punishment is a tremendous, takes a tremendous amount of work, but it's also something that's incredibly valuable. So I think those are just some of the other things. And then the last thing that I would say, because I don't want to skip this, is in order for a man to feel safe with the world and more specifically with women or the feminine in the world, he has to understand how to create safety within himself and within the feminine within himself, right? To be able to be compassionate, nurturing for himself, empathetic towards himself, to be able to forgive himself. The amount of men that I've worked with over the years who have come to me, and I don't say it directly, but I can hear it in what they're talking about, is so many men are struggling to forgive themselves, to know how to do that, mm-hmm. to give themselves the gift of forgiveness. And and so the degree to which a man can deal with and navigate his own feminine nature will equal the degree and the capacity that he has to be with women, to treat them well, to be safe for them. If a man doesn't feel safe within himself, how in the actual hell is he supposed <laughs> to feel safe for a woman? Yeah, like he doesn't know how to access it. That's right. So he can't model it. Yes. It would just be fake. Yeah. So, you know, in the in the book, I talk about not trying to get it right with women, not trying to chase women, not trying to figure women out because that's generally what we do. Like we're very external, right? And it's like, oh, there's, I love this woman. I got to figure her out. Or I got to, like, how do I get things right for her? Or how do I, you know, prove myself to her? And so we go, we go on this externalized adventure where we're trying to figure her out or win with her or whatever the case may be. And I think one of the biggest things is that it's not, it's not about her, you know, like in a heterosexual relationship, like she's not the journey. She's not the, the prize. She's not the thing for you to win or to figure out. It's actually you. It's your ethics, your morals as a man. It's you that's the journey. And that the, sur- the sooner that you can turn towards yourself and ask yourself the question, who do I become in relationship with this woman? Not who is she and how do I figure her out and how do I get it right with her and how do I make her happy? But actually, who do I become? Do I become anxious? Do I become needy? Do I become avoidant and shut down? The sooner that we can turn towards the truth of who we become in relationship, the sooner that we can see whether or not that's the right relationship to be Mm. in. And the sooner that we can become someone that is safe for that other person to be the fullest expression of themselves. And when you really listen, I think, and I could be wrong about this, but when I really listen to women describe what it is that they're wanting, generally speaking, what I'm hearing is women are wanting the safety to express, the safety to be seen, the safety to be understood, the safety to be heard, and to know that it's not going to be met with complete shutdown or avoidance or hostility and volatility. And so our work as men is to to see if we can carve ourselves into a kind of container that can sometimes hold what our kids are going through or what society is trying to sort out. Or, um, And when I say hold, I don't mean to take on and like <laughs> grunt down on, you know, and, and hold it within ourselves, but to allow that energy to, to 
penetrate us and move through us. You know, and, and we do that by understanding, who do I become in this relationship? Rather than trying to fix her or solve her or figure her out, we actually look at ourselves and we try and figure ourselves out and we try and get ourselves closer to our own sense of morality and ethics and, and how we actually want to operate as a man with integrity and congruency and alignment. And when we can do that, we not only respect ourselves much more quickly, but the women that we're with will respect us. And generally speaking, women want to be with men that they respect, period. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, I think great male friendships mm-hmm. and great romantic partnerships, and I'd say great parents, mm-hmm. and probably children and cousins and all that, but like the relationships that have truly transformed me and continue to are the ones that mirror back my potential mm-hmm. and where I'm not meeting it. You know, I think that's the beautiful container of a men's group or good male friends. Yeah. And that's different than what you get from your romantic partner. Often the conversations are more assertive, you know. Not always. A guy can be assertive. But also in romantic partnership, I, I totally agree with you. Like when when we move into being in integrity with our values, our morals, whatever that means for us, there's a trust within ourselves, hmm. a groundedness, a rootedness. And you said that change from going like, how do I get her? Mm-hmm. Which, oh my God, that's like my teens and 20s. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's like, how do I get her? Chase, chase, chase. Right, which is like not grounded, it's contrived, it's manipulative. And it, again, like none of that is intentional. It's mm-hmm. just like what you witness. It's mm-hmm. because there's not a lot of that. But when you see men who are grounded— who are like that women are gravitating towards. Either they're grounded or they have a guitar or both. Mm -hmm. But they're like, you know, they're gravitating towards these men who who are like, I actually don't want that person because she's not in integrity. That's right. Like they're in this place of such rootedness and purpose that it's attractive. Mm -hmm. And I know when I started to follow what I really wanted to do, which came through my pain, through the confession yeah. Like, I don't love what I do. I love relationships. And, you know, like, I want to understand them. When I finally did what you're saying and was starting to stand in my voice and my truth, nothing would have pulled me away from that mission. Mm-hmm. And nothing would pull me away from it now. Mm-hmm. And that, I, it just became more attractive. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and so I love everything you're saying because it, it's putting into words what I've experienced and really feel what I value, and I think uh, one way, and I'm sure you've already, you say this, I'm sure, but one thing that I see your book really serving is instead of it, because often you were saying we wait for destruction or we wait for the rock bottom mm-hmm. to to get the call. And I think often relationships can be the call. Yeah. But the book can be the call. Yeah. Right? It's like we might just have a sense of there's something more, or I I, my partner said she needs more from me. And I'm like, what the fuck does more mean? Yeah, what does that you even know? mean? <laughs> right. And uh, and I think your book can really serve that. And so um, thank you for writing it, and thanks for the work that you do. And Thanks, man. I'm sure there's people watching this or listening to this are like, I have so many more questions for Connor. <laughs> the book answers the questions. I mean, I don't know and, if it answers all the questions, but I, I, hope it, I hope it does. And the more that I've done this work, the more that I have found that a man who is connected to his own sense of presence is such a gift to our world. Yeah. Whether that's to his children, whether that's to the 
person that he's dating, his family, his friends, like your gift as a man is presence, you know, and then from that presence can emerge what you want to give to the world, you know, and when you couple that with your, with your gifts, there's a deep sense of purpose. Mm. But if we are, you know, our, our modern culture is very medicated and very distracted. And so it's very challenging for us. And, and I think a lot of us, like myself, and I've talked about this in my journey already on this podcast, but like I was very avoidant of my own stuff. And it required me to get present to those things that were existing inside of me and in my life that were hard and painful. And when I learned to get present to those things, I not only built up tolerance towards them, but I learned how to carry them more effectively, you know, and that in itself is a, is a kind of growth or expansion, however you want to call that, that has radically changed my life. Mm. And, you know, I think the people that are sometimes drawn to my work, it's like, it's just the presence you know, there's something there that like a friend of mine, Dewey Freeman, who's a, a now a mentor, he's like 72, he's a wonderful guy. He's a ninja. He's a cowboy. He's like a, yeah. like a real life cowboy. Um, he talks about, you know, a, a really good practitioner, facilitator, healer. What they're doing is extending their nervous system yeah, and allowing other people to feel the safety that resides within that sort of cocoon. But that requires presence, right? We can't be distracted by can't task be lists phone. and to-do lists and, you know, the the shame that we're carrying around from whatever it is, the the infidelity or the indiscretion of DMing some, you know, thirst trap on Instagram or whatever it is. Like that, <laughs> all that's distraction, right? Yeah. And so we have to start to return to this seat of presence that lives within us. And that's a little bit more esoteric and energetic, and maybe that's not, you know. It's take... also based on somatics and sure. nervous system. There is a that which cannot be named but is mm-hmm. felt in co-regulation and groundedness. We were going to talk about pornography. It's kind of ironic that we're finishing on porn, you know, like there's some, there's some the terrible joke, joke finishing? in there. Yeah, finishing yeah. on porn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, you know. Once uh, once you start looking for sexual puns, you can find them everywhere. That's true. When That's I worked as a pharmaceutical rep, the people who sold things like Viagra and Cialis, and, oh. I mean, there's just so many jokes. Totally. I, I, it's endless. Anyway, so pornography. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a bunch of different ways that we could get into this. I think, you know, I, I generally talk about it as... I'm not interested in having the debate about whether porn is good or bad because people get lost in that debate all the and time. And it exists. So. And, it, and it just doesn't necessarily do anything. I think one of the big things, um, not that that debate isn't, isn't necessary or helpful in some areas, but for the purpose of what I talked about in, in the book is a lot of writing about like what does porn actually do to your brain? Like what's your brain and your body like on porn? And What does it do to your brain? Well, so porn, you know, for the most part, it's an, it's entertainment, right? I think I've interviewed people that have been in the porn industry and they, that's what they talk about. It's an entertainment and it's treated as entertainment, but porn is from a neurological perspective, it's a, what's called a supranormal experience. And so what that means is like, for example, over the holidays, over Christmas, over Thanksgiving, you generally eat more than you normally would, right? So you consume a whole bunch 
And that's a super normal experience, right? Where your body actually consumes more or takes in more than it normally would, whether that's food or information or stimulation, right? So that's a super normal experience. Porn does the same thing where you are over-consuming from a sensory aspect, right? Because you can acquire whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, right? Whatever type of porn you want to watch, whatever your mind goes to, you can have it in that moment, which is not necessarily how the majority of people's sex lives go, right? Right. You're not getting what you want, when you want, however you want, all the time, constantly. And pornography offers that up. And so the way that our bodies work, and I'll break this down in a few different ways, but the way that our bodies work is like, if you have a super normal experience where you have a massive turkey dinner, your body can digest that fairly easily and it can return to homeostasis or return to baseline, right? Not really a big deal. Not really a lot of consequences. It's not going to mess up your hormones. It's not going to mess up the neurochemicals being released in your brain. You can return. If you were to eat that massive meal every single dinner, that's going to have some adverse consequences over time. So what porn does is when you're watching porn, you have a essentially a very similar experience to what you would have during sex. Like your brain can't really tell the difference between the screen and a sexual encounter, mm -hmm. right? So it kind of thinks that it's a part of it. So what happens over time is as you watch more and more porn or as you watch more porn in one sitting, your brain needs to consume more and more content and it needs to consume more and more volatile or fringe content in order to get the same amount of arousal, right? The same amount of mm -hmm. satiation. So this is where you see people that have like a hundred tabs open with, you know, different photos and videos and all going at the same time. Or you have, um, you know, people that watch for extended amounts of time, right? So I talk about my relationship to porn. I talk about how I was clearly biased because I, I struggled with porn for a long time. And it was something that was always in the background of my life and my relationships. And I watched it a lot. You know, I watched it most days. I watched it sometimes for hours. And for some people, the effects that it'll have on them is that they no longer get the same type of arousal from real, a real sexual encounter. So some men will, over time, experience um, not being able to get aroused with, with their partner. They can't get an erection. They can't get yeah. an erection. Um, they'll want more and more sort of fringe-oriented experiences in order to feel satiated or satisfied. But I think one of the biggest things that, that I talk about is that porn for a lot of men has become a tool to regulate their nervous system. It's become a tool for us to feel good really quick. So if you come home after a long day and you're stressed out and the kids are yelling and you don't have any tools or practices to calm yourself down and ground before you go to bed and you have trouble sleeping, porn's a really quick way for you to get off, feel better, and get a big dopamine hit, right? Because after you watch porn and after you ejaculate as a man, dopamine is released, oxytocin is released, which is the bonding chemical, and then something called prolactin. And prolactin is the chemical, um, in women it does something different, but in men it's the thing that allows our body to sort of just completely relax. So that sensation after you orgasm where you're like, ah, yeah. you know, you're like <laughs> time for a cigarette, you know, that's prolactin. And so for, for a lot of guys, it becomes the tool where 
if you're stressed, you watch porn, you feel better, right? You feel a little bit less stressed out. If you're anxious, you watch porn, you jerk off, you feel better. You're angry, you're disconnected, you're lonely, you're whatever it is. Whatever it is that you don't want to feel or experience, porn has become a lot of men's tool or resource to circumvent that feeling very quickly. But the problem is that for a lot of guys who have trauma or, you know, don't have other tools or resources to help them regulate, it becomes the primary tool for them to just reach a baseline, for them to feel a normal sense of no anxiety, no stress, no loneliness, no whatever. That's the challenge. And then um, a lot of the studies have shown, and I include a bunch of the research in the book, a lot of studies have shown that after you climax as a man, you know, you have a lot of dopamine that gets released. Some people call it a dopamine dump. It's not actually a dopamine dump. It's just that there's an increase of dopamine in your system. But then afterwards, there's a recession of it. So you actually go into a dopamine deficit afterwards. So for a lot of guys that watch porn sort of chronically, whether that's, you know, two to three times a week, that's considered chronic, what you'll actually find is that these recessions of dopamine get more and more and more and more. And so for you to get the same type of ecstatic feeling and that sort of rush after watching porn and getting off, you need more of it and you need to consume more sort of fringe stuff in order to get that same level of excitement. Most guys don't actually know how an erection works. And I feel like there's merit in talking about that, if that's okay. Sure, I love a good boner. Let's get into <laughs> it. Let's get into the physiology. So two parts to your autonomic nervous system, right? You've got the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Sympathetic is the gas pedal. Parasympathetic is the brake pedal. So the sympathetic is like fight, flight, or freeze. It's the go. It's what allows you to get shit done, right? Parasympathetic is the rest and digest. That's the part of your nervous system that is responsible for you feeling calm and grounded and just when you chill out, right? When yeah. you're just relaxed. So what most men think when they're like, oh, well, for my erectional work, it's just blood flowing into my penis, right? Well, yeah, that's part of it. But the really important part is actually your nervous system, your autonomic nervous system needs to be in a parasympathetic dominant state. So you actually, your body actually needs to be in a rest and digest state. It needs to be relaxed in order for you to get really aroused. So a lot of men that are struggling with non-medical uh, premature ejaculation or a lot of men that are struggling with non-medical erectile dysfunction, what's actually happening is that their body is in a predominantly sympathetic response, a predominantly stressed response, and that's not conducive for getting aroused. And so they're losing their erection, they are uh, orgasming too quickly, and that's happening because they're stressed. So when you think about something like performance anxiety, what's happening within mm. a man is that Stress, yeah. he's self-referencing, right? Am I going to come too quickly? Am I going to stay hard long enough? You know, is she going to enjoy this? You know, am, am I going to perform well? And all of that self-referencing causes a man's internal stress to go up. And generally speaking, what happens is that your respiratory rate will start to go up. So that means that you'll start to take more breaths per minute. That'll start to go up. Your heart rate will start to go up. And then your body will actually start to put out um, more stress hormones. So adrenaline and um, neuropinephrine and some of those other stress hormones and chemicals. So what happens is in order for you to be aroused in a man and get a, a, a heart on, your body needs to be in this relaxed state. 
and it allows blood to flow properly because when you're relaxed, your, your veins are actually more open, blood flows more easily, and the more stressed you are, the more constriction there is around veins. So the more that your body actually pulls blood into your core. So if you're somebody who has high stress in his life or high anxiety or is constantly anger, angry, your system, your, your nervous system is naturally going to be in that more stressed mm-hmm. orientation, meaning that you're going to have a harder time relaxing into the sexual encounter, relaxing into the sexual experience. And the way that a man's arousal actually works, the arc of it, is that you are in this sympathetic, this parasympathetic nervous system dominant state where you're more rested, you're more relaxed. And the closer you come to climax and orgasming, the more that your system shifts into that sympathetic response in the nervous system. And when you climax, you actually move into a heavy sympathetic nervous system response for a brief moment, right? For five to 15 seconds, you climax, and then you go all the way back in to that rest and digest, all the way back into that parasympathetic nervous system response, Mm. dominant response. So porn plays, where porn fits into this is that it's very easy for a man to use that as a tool to regulate his nervous system to feel more grounded and more calm because there's no risk, right? He doesn't have to take the risk. Well, you don't have to risk rejection. You don't have to risk getting turned down. You know, you don't have to risk approaching your, your partner and saying like, Hey, I, you know, I'd like to have sex tonight or I'm really turned on by you and having them say like, nah, I'm not interested or not tonight or I'm tired or whatever it is. So there's, there's less risk. There's, um, you, you know, you're not going to face rejection. And so it's just a little bit of an easier tool for a lot of men, but it doesn't mean that it's the right tool. I have a question. So the way that pornography obviously feeds, as you said, we can't really, we can't tell the difference between porn and the real experience. And I think VR porn, which I've never used because I know I don't stand a chance against it. <laughs> I haven't either. <laughs> right. It, but I've seen that it exists. And yes. I'm like, uh, that's not good because yeah. it would be, totally immersive outside of and i'm sure they're going to have devices that make it feel like you're actually going through that thing yeah um which part of me is like that's pretty cool and i want to try that and the other part of me being like don't (laughs) because that's the same reason you didn't try cocaine right right (laughs) dude because i'd still be doing it yeah that's right you know i'm very prone i like over consuming everything as you know what's the cost to our relationships because i think a lot of men are probably doing this sort of secretly or totally or um if they're feeling rejected in their relationship porn might be the way that they resolve or or soothe that rejection and and how do we begin to decouple uh nervous system regulation through pornography and and then learning self-regulation so the cost of the relationship i think each man needs to discern that for himself you know I, i really think that each man who has porn be an active part of his life needs to be really honest with himself about what price he maybe is paying or his relationship is paying for him having porn be a part of it. For me, I'll speak from personal experience and and some of the experience of what I've seen with men, because like I said, I've been working with men for, for a decade and I've worked with tens of thousands of guys and a lot of them struggled to let go of porn, you know, struggled to to stop watching it. For me, porn was part of the barrier for me to bring the full sexual expression of myself into my relationship. So rather than me saying, here's the fantasies I want to explore, here's the type of sexual interaction I want to have, here's the type of 
um, power dynamic or role play that I want to experience or explore, I would just go watch that in porn. Or I would go get it from an external relationship. So I would have my primary relationship with somebody that I loved, and then I would go and find women to enact these sort of other sexual experiences with that I wanted to have in, in my primary relationship, but would largely only bring to the women that I was having affairs with, that I was cheating on with. Mm-hmm. And so I think for a lot of guys, they end up splitting their sexual personality. They end up having the kind of nice relationship, decent, you know, maybe nice sex with their, with their partner, and then sort of longing for this experience of bringing out the fullness of their sexual expression. And maybe that gets ex- expressed through porn or cams or OnlyFans. That's my experience. The price that I was paying, the impact that it had on my relationship, is that my core relationships with the women that I really loved and wanted to be with never got the fullness of my sexual expression. And I deeply desired that. I really wanted to be able to bring all of who I was sexually into a relationship rather than having this divide. And I think a lot of men feel that if they're really honest or they've just never even had the space to explore the depths of their sexual expression in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they long for that. The answer to the second question about regulating our nervous system and, and sort of decoupling that part, there's some great work. Um, I, I'm blanking on the woman's name right now. I had this woman on my podcast from Harvard um, who did work on, on testosterone. I had another woman from Stanford who did, um, she's like one of the leading researchers on addiction. And one of the most effective tools is to go on a dopamine detox. So when you see things mm. like no nut November or no fap, you know, these- What's no fap? No fap is no masturbation. Oh. Uh-huh. So if you see these things are usually <laughs> around November. <laughs> What's with November? Right? It's my birthday. My birthday's in November. Me too. I'm, I'm all like, about it. It's that Scorpio yeah, life, right? Yeah, the, like, you should be jerking off a lot. The in powerhouse November. of sexual expression. So wait, so November, oh yeah, because that's Movember. That's, that's right. So you grow a mustache and you don't jerk you off. You don't jerk off and you don't orgasm. Even though if you have a mustache, it looks like you probably jerk off a lot. <laughs> You know, that's the irony. I mean, when I have a mustache, Holly, it definitely, Dude, my mustache I look like is straight so perf, bad. Straight I've got perf. a good sweeper. Nothing else is really, I got a good neck beard, which that's not anything to brag about. Yeah. I have a thick neck, thick stash. It's that's bad. Good. That's good. It's bad. Where were we going the with that? Yeah, the decoupling. The decoupling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could take, you so take you can these do, sort of like dopamine fast. Yeah, you can do a dopamine fast. Where you're fast. artificially creating yeah. dopamine. Yeah, and you, huh. and you. What I normally recommend to guys, and what I part of what I put in the book was, every man has a porn ritual. Every man that I've ever worked with has a porn ritual. He watches it at a certain time, on a certain device, in a certain place. And some men have a lot, like they've ritualized their porn watching, where some guys will like candles, and other guys, wow, you know, it's like it's, I never got that uh, romantic about my pornography. Yeah, maybe not that romantic, but you probably watched it, like it similar though. times, similar places, under similar probably. circumstances. Probably, I never like scored it, but for sure, like yeah. feeling <laughs> bored, feeling yes, whatever it is, yeah, yeah. So you're like, or you come across a titty, right. and all of a sudden you're like, oh, all of a sudden I you're, could jerk off right now, right, right, you yeah. Know? Yeah. Like one just, and now, I mean, social Instagram. media, as much as I put not interested, yeah. they come back up. They just put it back up. It's like, stop it. Yeah. They're just like, oh, you don't like it served that way. Right. Don't worry. We have one playing tennis. Yeah. You don't we like the full on yeah. ass. 
What about the side from the left? <laughs> right. What if we just give you the left cheek? How about someone rock climbing? <laughs> then it's just an ass in against rock. <laughs> Fucking rock climbing. I'm like, I like mountains, and they sneak it in there. Right, right, right. right. Here's a booty but on the rock How about beach mountain. volleyball? Oh, no, man. we know why people watch that. Okay, it's a great sport. But so, I, I get that, that desire to deplete. Yeah. But also, what do you do with the, how do you self-soothe? So part of it is like, get clear on what your ritual is. Um, go on a dedicated dopamine uh, fast or detox and know that it might take a few tries. Like it took me a couple of years to like really let go of porn. Yeah. You know, it didn't happen the first time that I tried it. But I think most guys don't have the same type of usage that I had. That's part of it. The next part is understand what you're feeling before you want to watch porn. Yeah, the, so, initi- the triggering The emotion. initial trigger, right? So like, are you feeling anxious and you just want to feel more calm? Are you feeling angry at your partner and disconnected and lonely? Like, what are you actually feeling? Because that's what you need to address. That's what you need to be with and and sit with. And then next, pick up some regulation practices, you know, pick up breath work, pick up um, like breath work. The breath is the conduit between like, I mean, your autonomic nervous system is like a seesaw, right? Between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. But the breath is actually the tool that allows you to move from one side of the seesaw to the other. So if you want to, like just naturally taking more breaths per minute is naturally going to, and breathing through your mouth is naturally going to tip your autonomic nervous system into that more stressed orientation. Slowing the breath down and taking less breaths per minute and relaxing into that breath is naturally going to move it towards that more parasympathetic, calm orientation. So for men, a big part of it, what I say is pick up some form of breath work practice or energy practice, right? Whether it's Tai Chi or going to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or some form of martial art, some form of, of yoga or going like Qigong, all oh, of yeah, those Qigong. things, rock climbing, you know, like speaking, all of, speaking, speaking of, speaking of rock, rock climbing, climbing. Yeah. yeah, although, you In know, based like, on what we were just talking like about. a little pair of Nike Pros and <laughs> send them to your friends. I wear the tightest of shorts to rock climbing. <laughs> I mean, it's a great, it's a great sport. Yeah. To be immersed in nature. And then, you, you know, I know in the conversation about nervous system uh, regulation is about riding the wave. That's right. Like moving through the feeling that comes up. Yeah. And letting it, it will go. It will go. But we're so used to trying to treat it or negate it or dismiss it or yeah. dopamine it. We we usually, like, I found that men usually respond from two ways, right? We we react to it and become it, or we try and shut it down entirely. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, I don't want to feel this way. I'm going to try and stuff that shit down. Or we just give over to it and we become it, right? And we just allow it to run rampant. And then we want to get away from it. Do you speak about all these solutions in your book? Yeah, I have like a, in the section around porn, I actually have like a methodology mapped out because the book is designed to be a guide that men, there's questions in every single chapter for men to self-reflect. And then there's exercises for men to integrate the the principles. So there's actual practices that men can do um, as they go through the book, whether it's, you know, about the section with women or their fathers or pornography or leaving a legacy in the world, like I've designed it so that you got to do some work along the yeah. way. It's called men's work. You got to do some work along the way. <laughs> the beautiful work of getting to know yourself and yeah. heal yourself. Well, thank you, sir, for coming. Yes, sir. And uh, where can people find your book? Where can they, you have a podcast. So just tell them all the places to find more of Connor Beaton. 
Yeah, I mean, probably the easiest way is mantalks.com. Uh, the book is at mantalks.com forward slash book. You can also just search for men's work on uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's at all the major bookstores. Um, and Perfect. then you can find the podcast and whatnot on there, but also at, at mantalks on Instagram if you want to follow along. Perfect. We'll make sure we put all those links in the show notes. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you, brother. Love you, buddy. Love you, too. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love. 